You know, as we gather together in this room today, there is a diversity among us, right? We're a diverse group of folks. The fact that this is the fifth Sunday when we have our children here with us, my grandson Carson's in the room. Hey, Carson over there. Is he asleep? No? (laughs) Yes, of course he is. Harper, how's it going? Good to see you. Glad you're here. She said, please don't call my name in public. Um, We've got some five-year-olds in the room. We've got some 85-year-olds in the room. There's a diversity of age here today. There's a diversity of backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. Some of you came from somewhat poor backgrounds. Some of you came from more affluent backgrounds. There's a diversity of occupations We have all kinds of different occupations represented in the room. Some of you are educators. Some of you are in insurance. Some of you are in medicine. Some of you are firefighters. We have police officers in our room. We've even got a few preachers in the house. So there's a diversity of occupations. But you know what? We all share something in common. This is what we share in common. All of us sin. And all of us daily, regularly, sometimes imperceptibly, are tempted to sin. In fact, let's show of hands. Is there anybody here today who doesn't daily struggle with the temptation to sin? Anybody? Daily? If you raised your hand, you just sinned. You're a liar. We all struggle with the temptation to sin. We have diversity in this room in the sense that this Saturday, when the football season kicks off, we're all going to be pulling for different teams, most of us. There are some in here, bandwagoners, who are fans of the number one Alabama Crimson Tide, right? We got some Crimson Tide in the house. There's some of you who are fans of the number five Georgia Bulldogs. We've got some Bulldogs in the house. There's even a handful of us, number 13 ranked Florida Gators. And there's even some tried and true, believe it or not, Tennessee Volunteers. <laughs> What, what's, what are they ranked? I can't remember. Oh, they're, they're not ranked. Sorry. But even though there's great diversity, we all have this common issue. We all deal with temptation. And as we've been considering this theme of hope throughout this summer, the great theme of hope, over the last four weeks, we've turned a corner and we've really been considering of some of the, the fruit and some of the consequences of a hopeful life. And this morning, we're going to consider one such consequence from the book of James chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles open or the Bible study outline, you can look there, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Here's what the Bible says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I'm going to stop right there. Because I want us to just think a little bit about what James says there, the crown of life. You know what that is? That's hope. (laughs) The fact that one day this whole life will be over and the struggles we experience, particularly of temptations to sin, they're going to be gone and we're going to have the crown of life. We're going to have the promise of God to those who he loves. This is our hope. And when we have this hope that James is talking about here, it is a hope that compels us, that encourages us to endure the tests, the trials, and the temptations of life. And now what James does in this passage is he really sets up from the reality of our hope, he then gives a step-by-step tutorial on temptation. 
He lets us know how temptation works, how it operates in the human heart, and how we can look at it. We don't have time today to fully mine the depths of this passage, so I commend it to your further study. So we're going to just look at the highlights or the lowlights as the case may be. So let's read again, verse 12. We'll read from verse 12 through verse 18. The Bible says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so what James does here is he sandwiches in between two realities that give us hope. Reality number one, there is a promise of a crown of life. There's a promise of an eternity and a future with him in heaven. And then at the end of this passage, he talks about this idea of being born again. He uses the language of, by his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That is obstetrics language. That is birth language. He's talking about the spiritual new birth, the regeneration from death to life. And friends, we've already considered this way back eight weeks ago, that this is a basis for our hope, that we have a new birth in Christ to be born again. What a tremendous source of hope. As we consider this passage together today, there are really three truths I want us to consider regarding the believer's hope and how that enables and empowers and compels us to endure through temptation. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to consider the source of temptation. The source of temptation. Again, verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. What James addresses here is a fundamental problem in human nature. It's called the blame game. You thought people playing the victim card was a new thing. It's not a new thing. We don't live in just a victim mentality in our current 21st century culture. The victim mentality has existed as long as humans have been walking the planet. It's always been the blame game. We like to point the finger at someone else. We like to cleverly say things so as to deflect any type of personal responsibility for any type of decisions we make. It happens very early in our lives. Children, very early, learn how to deflect, how to blame someone else. Johnny, did you put the peanut butter sandwich in the VCR? No, that was Susie. He's lying. He's deflecting. It's a blame game. Children shirk the guilt for their own wrong, and they grow up to be adults who shirk the guilt for their own wrongdoings. This is exactly what happened in the garden, the very first sin, isn't it? Look how Genesis 3 records it. He, God, said, who told you that you were naked? Yes or no question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? A very straightforward question, and notice how Adam shifts the blame. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate it. 
Whose fault was it, Adam? Oh, this woman. I mean, think about poor Adam, right? He goes to bed one night, never seen a woman, doesn't know what a woman is. He wakes up the next day, and all of a sudden, there's a naked woman right beside him. I mean, this is a new experience for Adam. And so he says, this woman that you gave to me. And who does he shift the blame to ultimately? God. You're the one that put this woman in my life. I didn't ask for her. You gave her to me. And now she has lured me into this sin. Eve shifts the blame as well. Notice what she says in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In other words, I'm a victim. Adam's a victim. We're all victims. Just like Adam's not responsible. Well, he shifted the blame to me. I'm not responsible either. In fact, who's responsible? Uh, This serpent that, by the way, God, you created, that you put in the garden. The garden was great. We were enjoying it. But all of a sudden, the serpent that you created comes into the garden. And this has been the case ever since the beginning. People like to shift the blame. This is just how God made me. I'm sorry I'm so angry. I'm very passionate about what I believe in. Shifting the blame. I'm sorry that I committed sin. I'm sorry that I committed adultery. I can't help the fact that I have the the strong libido that God's given me. You know, I wouldn't steal if I wasn't so poor, says the thief. This is the tendency. We're victims of our surroundings. We're victims of circumstance. We're victims of our proclivities and our passions, and we shirk responsibility, and we go so far as to actually blame God. This is just how I was born. But James cuts that line of thinking off. He says, listen, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. This is an exhortation that forbids ever putting the blame on God. But do you know what else you can't say? You can't say, for those of you who remember Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. You can't say the devil made me do it. Interesting, in this short treatise on temptation, James never mentions the devil. Now, sure, there is a devil. He is real. And we know there are three culprits that allure and tempt us, the world, our flesh, and the devil. But what he focuses on here is our own passions, our own desires welling up within us. That is the source of temptation. And we'll consider that even to greater extent in just a moment. But before we move on, I think before we go to the next point, I want us to think a little bit about the nature of God that James establishes here, particularly this aspect of his nature. Verse 13, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, what James is doing here is he's drawing a comparison and contrast between God, the one true God, and the false gods of paganism, the false gods of, say, Greek mythology. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that those gods, they're mythical, they're not real, but in the imaginations of men, their gods often tempted one another. They often sinned. They were often given over to the passions that drove them. And so these pagan gods and the Greek mythological gods, having spun out of the fallenness of man, manifest the very same corruption, the very same wickedness that humans have. But God is not like that. God is other. God cannot be tempted. So the whole realm of evil 
has no sway on God. In fact, God repulses evil. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not tempt with evil. But still, people say really dumb things. If God didn't want me to eat this fattening food, he wouldn't put the cheesecake in front of me, right? If God didn't want me to cheat on this test, we'd give him more time to study, like you would have taken the time to study. If God didn't want me to steal paper clips from my company, he would raise my salary. If God wanted me to have a better marriage and not commit adultery, he would have not given me these feelings for this other person. It's so easy to play the blame game and not accept personal responsibility. Here's the thing. God is not the source of our temptations. He's the solution to our temptations, which leads right into the next thing I want us to consider. Number two, the stages in temptation. After James firmly establishes that temptation does not come from God, that we can't play the victim and cast blame just like Adam and Eve did on God, he then breaks down the process or the stages that happen in the human heart, the fallen human heart, that give rise to disobedience, they give rise to sin in our lives. And so he begins to diagnostically look at these stages, and I want to break them down. Four things to consider. First thing he points out is this, desire. This is in verse 14. Each person is tempted by his own desire. Some translations translate that word desire as lust. It's been said before that temptation, listen, is the opportunity to fulfill a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. Let me say that again. Temptation is the opportunity to fulfill a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. There are some desires in life that are good, that are acceptable, that cause human flourishing. In fact, most all lust. Most all evil desire is God's good gift that has been twisted and perverted. Let me give you some examples. God has given us the blessing and the desire of sleep. Whenever you get sleepy, it's your body telling you you need rest. Rest is good. Rest is right. But when that desire that is good is perverted and twisted, we become sluggards, we become lazy, we become indolent. God has given us the benefit of clothing, right? To keep us warm, to cover us. But when that desire that God's given for clothing becomes twisted, then all that happens is we become obsessed with our wardrobe. And we build bigger closets to hold more shoes. It's wonderful that God's given us the gift of shelter. It's wonderful to have privacy in our homes where we can love and do life with our family. But our homes can become an all-consuming fetish. There's nothing wrong with thirst. God's given us the desire of thirst so that we would be hydrated, but people can drink themselves into the gutter. There's nothing wrong with food, but you can take this desire for food and become gluttonous. There's nothing wrong with the glorious gift of sex. But when it's perverted and sought outside the will of God for the purpose for which he created it, it's illegitimate. The bottom line is, we don't need Satan. We have enough baseness in our own flesh to lead us away in temptation. 
the resident passion, the inborn desire of human nature moves and motivates us to sin. And here in verse 14, James really dissects what that desire looks like, which leads to the very next point. It goes from desire to deception. Deception. Two words I want to point out that really are word pictures when he is lured and enticed. Now, if you're an outdoorsman, if you hunt or you fish, these word pictures are going to be right up your alley. You're going to understand them perfectly. They make a lot of sense to you because he's taking an illustration from hunting and he's taking another illustration from fishing. The word here, lured, is a word that was used in the first century to describe a hunter who would bait a trap for an animal. The word that's translated enticed was used for a bait that was put on a fishing hook. And so we can see he's using an illustration from hunting. He's using an illustration of fishing. And because of the deceptive nature of the bait, the animal sees the attractive food in the bait, smells it, and he's trapped, right? You've probably seen this sign before. It's kind of comical. It says, baiting deer is illegal. This corn pile is intended for squirrels, chipmunks, and other such critters. Any deer found eating this corn will be shot. (laughs) Why do hunters plant corn patches in the middle of the woods? Are they going to harvest that corn and eat it? Sell it? No, they're baiting deer, right? The deer see it, they smell it, they come up and eat eat it, and from this lofty treetop, they're gone. The same is true with a fish, right? This fish is swimming along. He didn't know this was going to be his last day taking a lap around the lake. He sees that attractive-looking lure, and all of a sudden that wide-mouthed bass takes a bite and he's gone, and the fisherman is pulling him in, dragging him away. We are lured, James says. We are enticed by our own desires. And then on top of that, we do have the world. On top of that, we do have the devil throwing deception with us. Think of this. Satan owns a bait shop. In fact, he owns all the franchises of bait shops. And he set up a bait shop right beside your house. You may not know that, but he's got a bait shop right beside your house. In fact, he's got several on your way to work. He's got a couple available to you whenever you go to lunch. And he knows exactly the last purchase you made. And he is stocking the shelves full of everything that lures and entices you. And the more we linger, the more we meditate, the more we focus, the more deceived we will become. By the way, in each of these stages of temptation, it gets more and more difficult to resist. It's a slippery slope. It goes from desire to deception, and then from deception, here it is, disobedience. Sin. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Well, James is mixing metaphors here. First, he's talking about Uh, these outdoorsman metaphors. Now he's going to move to obstetrics metaphor, birthing metaphor, being conceived. That's the same language for a baby being conceived in the womb of a human. And he says, when desire and deception come together, the egg is fertilized, there's a conception that happens. When the baby is conceived, it's disobedience. It gives birth to sin. Listen, when a woman is pregnant, She's not partially pregnant, almost pregnant, kind of pregnant. 
You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant, right? Not if you're with me. The same way here. When this conception has taken place, when desire from their human flesh and deception has connected, it is conceived in sin. And that sin will come to fruition. This is the action of your will. You make the choice. Yes, I'm going to do it. You've made a decision in your heart. I'm going to follow through with this decision. And that really leads to the final thing. What does it give birth to? Letter D, death. And sin, when it is fully grown, when it's fully developed in the womb of the human heart, it comes out of the birth canal spiritually, and it brings forth death. I told you earlier, this this phrase brings forth, we see it in verse 18. It's talking about the new birth being regenerated, our spiritual birth. He uses the exact same word here. It's referring to literally human birth. But here it's spiritual, and he says, you become pregnant, Deception and desire comes together. Sin is conceived. It will always bring forth death. And really, this is a grotesque illustration if you think about it. I mean, birth in our minds is a beautiful, miraculous, captivating event, right? And the baby comes out, and everyone's enamored with the glory and the beauty of this baby. And James says, here's how it happens in the womb of the human heart. Desire and deception is conceived into disobedience and sin. When it gives birth, it gives birth to a serial killer. Gives birth to death. That's exactly what James is saying here. Listen, the rules have not changed through the millennia. The wages of sin is death. It's always been that way. We sin, death is the fruit. Started with Adam and Eve, and it comes all the way to today. And we need to understand, death was never part of God's original design. Death was not a part of his original design. And the nature of death is that it always brings separation, right? When a human being dies... We know they don't cease to exist. Death is a separation of the body and the soul. Death always brings separation. Eternal death for those who are judged unto hell. Hell is, at its worst case, a separation between the good God and the human being. Death always brings separation. In the garden, there was separation relationally. Adam and Eve's relationship was never the same. There's separation geographically. They were kicked out of the garden. There's separation spiritually and emotionally. Their relationship with God was never the same. They never walked with God in the cool of the day. And even in the New Testament, Christians are warned about their sin and the potential consequences. In 1 John chapter 5, the Apostle John talks about a sin unto death. To the church in Corinth, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11 regarding communion, the Lord's Supper. Some of you are ill and weak and some have even died because they've taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Death is the consequence of sin. And for the believer in Jesus that succumbs to the temptations in life, oh, we may not die physically in the sense of the word, 
And we don't die for sure as a Christian in that we lose our relationship with God. But you know what dies is our intimacy with the Lord, our fellowship with the Lord, our walking with God in the cool of the day. But friends, praise God for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do you feel when you give in to temptation? Initially, you feel pretty good. That's why sin is so attractive, because it brings this elation to us, the satisfaction to us. Sin is enjoyable in the moment, but friends, for the believer in Jesus Christ, there will come the sense of death, the sense of dying. Well, praise God, James doesn't stop here. He moves to this third strategy in our war with temptation, and that's number three, the solution for temptation. The solution for temptation. The final section of our passage really outlines for us how we overcome, how we win the victory against temptation. And you might guess it has to do with where we place our hope. Where are we hoping? We hope in God that we might victoriously endure the temptations we face. Three things about this solution that James gives for us. Number one, we reflect on God's goodness. He tells us to reflect on God's goodness. Look again at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, you've probably heard this verse before if you're a Christian for any period of time. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. But you may not have ever looked at it within the context that it was given. It's given within the context of temptation to sin and overcoming temptation and overcoming the allurement of deception. Why is he saying this? What what does this have to do? Well, just to point out, it's the goodness of God. And we know that because of the repetition of the words James uses. Every, every good, perfect gift, gift. He's trying to emphasize something here. The goodness of God. God is is good. We sing that as children, don't we? God is so good. Now, why would James have us focused on the goodness of God? I mean, you might think that for motivation, James would have us focus on the judgment of God. You get out of line, you're going to get it. He's going to smash you. He's going to knock you down. But he doesn't focus on negative motivation. He focuses us, thankfully, on positive motivation. We're to reflect on the goodness of God. Why? A couple reasons. One, I think this affirms what he said earlier about the nature of God. You can't blame God for your sin. God is so good. Every, every good, perfect gift, gift comes from the Father of lights. In him, there is no variation. There's no change. There's no shadow. You can't blame God for your sin. But I think another reason for him bringing this up is this, and I'll put it like this in in fishing terms. A fat fish is not lured by a baited hook. You, You can put the bait out in the deer field all you want, but if the deer has a full belly, he's not gonna eat the corn. He's not gonna be allured to the corn. What does that mean? When we find our satisfaction in the goodness of God, 
When we find our wholeness and our completeness in who God is and what he has done for us, friends, the allurements of the world, the allurements of the devil, the allurements even of our own fallen flesh will not have the enticement that they used to have. The prophet Jeremiah put it like this in Jeremiah chapter 2. He said, For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is he saying? He says, friends, if you find your satisfaction in life, in the broken cisterns that you've created, and you drink from the murky, polluted water, you won't run to those broken cisterns if you find the satisfaction for your souls in the fountain of living water who is God himself. This is the motivation. We reflect on the goodness of God because as we focus on him and as we find our satisfaction in him, friends, it makes the passions and the desires and the deceptions that so easily allure us, we we can resist that temptation. And I can't move on without commenting on the profound aspect of God's nature that James brings to the surface here. He refers to God with this title, Father of Lights. Now, this was a pretty common title for God among the Jewish folks of the first century, Father of Lights. And what it referred to was the fact that God is the origin, he's the creator of all the celestial lights that we see, the sun, the moon, the stars. But unlike those things, from our perspective, the sun crosses the horizon. The moon has different phases and is at different parts of the sky during the day and at night. God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what does James say about God? He is good. Find your satisfaction in him. So that's the first thing. Number one, reflect on the goodness of God. Secondly, reach for God's word. Reach for God's word. Look again at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth. This is that birth language, the language of the regeneration, the new birth. He brought us forth by the word of truth. It was God's will. In fact, James 1.18 in the New American Standard, this is really the best translation of this verse that I've read. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth, new birth, by the word of truth. Friends, what does this mean? The sovereign act of regeneration God wrought in every believer's heart, he did so by the word of truth. And the only way we're going to win the war against temptation is through the word of truth, through the word of God. We won't experience victory over disobedience to God by just positive affirmations. I'm smart enough. I'm good enough. And doggone it, people like me. That won't help you win the war against sin. What do we need? Well, all we've been talking about, deception, allurement, enticement, what is that? It's lies. What do we combat lies with? Truth. And James says, this is how he brought us forth, by the word of truth. Friends, our world is filled with lies. We believe those lies. We act on those lies. What do we need? We need the truth. Friends, if you're struggling with temptation, but you never crack open your Bible, here's your problem. 
Read the Word. Study the Word. Meditate on the Word. Reach for God's Word. Here's the third thing. Thirdly, remember God's purpose. Remember God's purpose. He says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's he saying here? God created each of us with a plan, with a will, with a purpose for our lives. And every time temptation comes in, it's an opportunity for us to live outside of the purpose for which he's created us. Every time we move from desire to deception, from deception to disobedience, and that gives birth to death, we get that much more off the course of God's purpose for which he's created us. Most of you are probably familiar with what a thumbnail photo is, right? A thumbnail, if you've ever been on a website or you look at a file folder on your computer with pictures on it, it'll show you thumbnails. You go to YouTube, you see all these YouTube videos, those are thumbnails. What happens when you click on the thumbnail? You get the expanded vision of the full picture or the full video. And that's something of what James is saying here. We are a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're a thumbnail version of the future glory. See, God has already done a new work in our lives. He's taken us from death to life. Hallelujah. He's regenerated us, caused us to be born again by the power of his spirit. We're a thumbnail of what's going to come because God promises a new heaven and a new earth. God promises that all of creation is going to be made over. It's the ultimate extreme home makeover. God is going to do a new thing, and God looks at us as he's already recreated us into his image. Though we still have this fallen flesh, though we're still daily given into temptation and enticements of the evil one, we are still a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're a thumbnail version of what he's going to do. And what is this? What is this promise of a new heaven and a new earth? What is this promise that we're just the thumbnail version of what he's going to do in all of creation? I'll tell you what it is. Hope. There's hope. I've heard that somewhere before. There is hope. And this hope motivates us to endure even through the tests, trials, and temptations of this life. I'll close with this. There's a story told of an early church father who after he came to know Jesus and was committed to Christ, one day he's walking down the street of his town when a former mistress sees him from across the street and she begins to call out his name. He doesn't respond, he doesn't turn, he doesn't look. And so she calls even louder and louder. He still doesn't respond, he doesn't look. Till finally this former mistress runs out across the other side of the street, gets in front of his path and says, it is I. And he says, oh, I know, but it is no longer I. There's a change that's happened, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We are new creations in Christ. We've been, tr- been transformed by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus and who he is and what he's done to take the punishment for our sins. And the same is true for each of us who name the name of Christ as the allurements and the enticements of our flesh and the world and the devil come against us with the full onslaught of hell. And we say, it is no longer I, but it is Christ who lives in me. And that leads to my last thought. There is a winning strategy for our struggle with sin. Hope in 
God, the Father of lights, from whom is every good and perfect gift. Let's go to him in prayer.